Stanford University. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to thank Nora for uh, having me uh, back uh, to uh, talk to you about something that's uh, um, a special topic for me, and I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Um, and the topic is uh, contemporary management of uh, facial paralysis. And uh, many of you, uh, or some of you, I should say, may know somebody who is, who is touched by this, and I'm hoping that tonight we can shed some light on this uh, and maybe talk about some new advances uh, in treatment. The objectives uh, for tonight are hopefully uh, to impress upon you the psychosocial and functional impacts of a facial nerve paralysis. A basic understanding of facial nerve anatomy uh, is important, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on that um, and talk about some basics of peripheral nerve injury and recovery, and particularly uh, as it pertains to facial nerve paralysis and recovery. And finally, we're going to spend some time uh, to understand the challenges uh, and approaches in rehabilitation of the facial nerve using uh, surgical techniques. So um, that's what I'm hoping to accomplish tonight in the time that we have. And uh, I think we can all appreciate the old saying that the, the face is the seat of human expression. And, and, and um, I'm going to have you take a few moments to look at some of the images I'm going to show you. And, and the patients uh, have been very kind to let me use uh, some of their images here. And when you look at this image, you uh, can probably make some sort of understanding for yourself uh, as to the patient's or the subject's emotive state. And uh, here, uh, if you just take a few moments and look, uh, this is uh, someone who appears uh, content, perhaps uh, happy. Um, uh, and if we look at the same uh, image um, at a different point in time, we see perhaps emotions which convey uh, sadness or anger. Um, uh, if we look at this image, we see a subject who, again, may appear sad uh, or angry. Uh, and these, these are uh, nonverbal cues that you're getting just from the position of the face and the facial musculature. Same subject, uh, maybe a look of surprise, uh, maybe a look of uh, happiness or excitement. Uh, but what I really haven't told you is these are um, digitally manipulated images, uh, mirror images of the patient, the true images in the center. And that image is that of a patient with a left-sided facial paralysis. And on the right, I'm sorry, the left side of the screen, uh, you see the mirror image using uh, digital manipulation of the normal side of the face and the left side, the affected side of the face. And you can see the clear uh, disharmony in emotion that's expressed uh, between the paralyzed and the non-paralyzed side. If you take a look at uh, the other uh, uh, gentleman, uh, the same thing. The true image is in the center, um, and the digitally manipulated images are on the sides. The uh, image on the left side is the uh, paralyzed side reflected on itself, and you can see that there's an uh, emotion portrayed of anger or sadness, um, certainly dismay, and on the other side, one of happiness uh, or surprise. And I think that um, these sort of digital 
playground images give you uh, some appreciation uh, for the psychosocial impact for uh, patients who have this uh, problem. Patients who come to me uh, with long-standing facial paralysis or even nuanced facial paralysis often express to me uh, their uh, uh, dismay and, and the, the fact that they have difficulty in public often uh, because of lack of understanding of what they're going through. Um, children and so on may uh, have uh, some difficulty understanding what's going on. Often patients will say their grandchildren or nieces and nephews have a little trouble understanding what's going on. And so there is a significant psychosocial impact. Um, functionally, it affects speech. As you can imagine, if you can't move one side of your face or your mouth very well, it can very well affect your ability to speak and communicate. Um, it can affect your ability to eat or drink. Uh, it can affect your nose, your nasal function. This may not seem intuitive, but uh, the muscles on, the, on uh, the side of the nose there can be affected by paralysis and cause some obstruction. Um, visual obstruction occurs when the eyebrow, which is no longer supported, falls down and the upper eyelid falls down as a cause of, because of that. Um, and eye irritation and ultimately blindness if there's uh, no care for the eye can occur uh, in patients who are unable to protect their cornea. We're going to spend some time talking about uh, these different issues. Just to kind of show you a video of what this is like in a dynamic situation, this is uh, another subject who is kind enough to let me use his images. You can see um, uh, that the mouth is canted to the left. The left corner is lower than the right when he smiles. The upper portion of the forehead on the left does not move. Uh, and uh, eye closure is difficult. In this case, the eye was actually um, uh, rehabilitated, so he was able to get some uh, complete closure with difficulty in that situation. So we've kind of done our little introduction. I'd like to spend a, a little bit of time talking about the anatomy of the facial nerve. And uh, the facial nerve is very unique. It's the seventh uh, cranial nerve. It was originally described uh, by Sir Charles Bell uh, in 1821. Uh, and uh, this is a lithograph on the left side of the screen from his original description of this. He was a, a well-known surgeon and neuroanatomist. And uh, Bell's palsy uh, is named after uh, Sir Charles Bell. The functions of the nerve are not only um, motor functions. In other words, it's not just movement of the muscles of the face. Uh, uh, it also is very important in tear formation. Uh, there are nerve fibers that go out to the glands around the, uh, the, the gland at the superlateral portion of the eye uh, to form tears. Uh, there are fibers that go out to glands involved in creation of saliva in the mouth. There are fibers that go out to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and that are involved in um, taste. And this is definitely not something that's uh, uh, intuitive to folks who don't know the anatomy. It's involved in hearing. So one of the branches of the nerve goes to a small muscle that attaches to the ear bones in the, in the middle ear, and it uh, dampens loud noises. So patients with facial paralysis that, uh, in, in whom that branch is affected can have difficulty with loud noise situations. I'd like to kind of describe some of the pathway of the nerve because it's an interesting pathway. It exits the skull base at the brainstem and enters the temporal bone, which is one of the bones of the base of the skull, and takes a very circuitous path through that, uh, through that temporal bone. Let's see if I can show with the pointer here. As it enters the temporal bone uh, here, uh, very closely associated with the auditory nerve and the balance nerves, by the way, it uh, makes a really tight turn, exits through the skull base at what's called the stylomastoid foramen, deep in the neck beneath the ear, and it then becomes more superficial, enters one of those saliva glands I told you about, the largest one called the parotid gland, splits into five main motor branches, 
These are branches to the muscles. Uh, the frontal branches to the forehead, the zygomatic branches to the area around the eye that gives you closure of the eye. Buccal branches in the mid portion, uh, which allow uh, expression in the mid portion of the face and the upper lip. And then uh, branches down to the lower lip and to the neck. Um, a complicated diagram, the point here is again that there are fibers here that don't just go to muscles. There are fibers that go up in this schematic diagram here shown here going to the uh, eye, the lacrimal gland involved in creation of tears, fibers that go out to ganglia involved in creation of saliva uh, in the head and neck, and fibers that go out to the tongue to give uh, uh, taste sensation to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So the, the facial nerve is actually a very um, varied nerve in terms of its function. I apologize for the redness of this slide. Uh, this is just to give you an idea of the anatomy in situ uh, of the facial nerve. And uh, this is an unusual situation where a large uh, amount of uh, dissection has been performed, but I can show you that the um, parotid gland here, which has been removed, uh, covers a portion of the facial nerve, which is shown in these branches extending up uh, to the muscles of the face, kind of tracing them with the mouse here, all the way out uh, to um, distal portions of the uh, face and the, and the muscles around the mouth and the eye and so on intimately related to other nerves and muscles in the face, which we don't need to get into in this slide. The muscles of the face are um, complex and innervated by the facial nerve. The muscles of the face are interesting because, once again, we don't have the usual situation, which is linear tension vectors alone. We actually have circular tension vectors uh, on the face, which allow us to have important functions of eye closure and closure around the mouth, um, down here. So the circular function or sphincteric function is, uh, is not the usual function, for example, in your bicep or muscles in your leg. We do have linear tension vectors as well, so a combination of multiple muscle vectors gives us our ability to express ourselves in speech, in nonverbal cues, and also it has important functions in uh, nasal breathing and also um, uh, the, the ability to keep food and drink in the mouth when you eat. So they're all important functions. And we're, that's an important point to make is as we get back to rehabilitation, we're going to talk about how complex it is to try to recreate those various uh, tension vectors in the face. Um, again, uh, this slide is really just to give an appreciation of the complexity of the nerve as it exits uh, from the, from the uh, brain, enters the, the skull base in the bone. This whole path here in this little thin tunnel is important because in trauma and pathophysiology of the nerve, it can get compressed in that area. And that's the next thing we're going to talk about. Just a little uh, primer on um, facial nerve injury, the pathophysiology of nerve injury, and different ways that nerves recover. There are multiple causes of facial paralysis and really too many to mention in any one uh, given slide uh, or lecture. And um, these aren't given in any particular order um, in terms of frequency. But uh, one of the important causes for facial nerve paralysis and injury are head injuries. Any fracture of that skull base, that slide which I just showed you, with that very uh, a small circuitous path and tunnel that the nerve travels through, any swelling uh, along that pathway in a closed space can cause injury to the nerve, interruption of the blood supply, fractures across the base of the skull, uh, um, where the nerve is sheared can cause complete laceration or uh, trauma to the nerve. Penetrating injuries to the face for obvious reasons can sever the nerve. 
iatrogenic causes, uh, unintended results of surgery. We often do surgery in the head and neck in very tight spaces, uh, and the nerve can be very close by. And um, we may know it's at risk without intention to uh, harm it, but it may um, end up being injured uh, because of this. Extirpative surgery, removal of tumors. Sometimes it's necessary to actually remove the nerve to get around a tumorous mass, and we know we're going to do it, and it's just a necessary portion of the treatment. Infectious causes are thought to be increasingly important uh, in facial nerve paralysis, uh, viral and bacterial causes, uh, such as Lyme disease. Um, stroke uh, is uh, an important cause of facial paralysis. In this case, it's not an injury to the peripheral portion of the nerve, but actually to the neurons in the brain that give rise to the nerve. Um, and in many cases, there's no cause identified. And I put an asterisk there because that is indeed what uh, true Bell's palsy is. The term Bell's palsy is often used in the, in the, in the public to describe uh, facial paralysis. But in fact, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. In other words, all these other reasons, known causes, need to be excluded before you can really call something Bell's palsy. Uh, again, it was originally described in 1821. Uh, its incidence in the, in the epidemiologic literature uh, is about 23 in 100,000, a lifetime risk estimated to be about 1 in 65, so it's not trivial. Um, there are a number of uh, risk factors which have been identified, one of which is diabetes. And um, the etiology is unclear, although the picture is starting to come into focus. We do think that there uh, is in Bell's palsy some sort of inflammation of the nerve, and the cause of it is thought to likely be a viral one uh, in many cases. And for this reason, antiviral therapy is often used in patients with initial presentation for, uh, with a Bell's palsy. A few brief comments about a Bell's palsy. Um, uh, there are basically three possible, uh, or sorry, three main groups of outcomes uh, from this process. Once all the other diagnoses have been excluded and we determine someone has Bell's palsy, they have a very good chance of recovery. About 85% of patients uh, with Bell's palsy will have, a, will have a complete recovery with no significant sequelae. The incidence of that actually, or the, uh, the likelihood of perfect recovery, uh, goes even higher if the patient didn't have a complete paralysis to start with. So uh, in general, patients with Bell's palsy do very well. Uh, the second group of patients are those in whom there's no obvious cosmetic deformity um, during recovery. There's about 10% of patients who go into this category. But upon close inspection, you can detect some minor things which are uh, evidence that a facial uh, Bell's palsy had occurred. In about 5% of patients, there are obvious permanent sequelae. And uh, fortunately, those are the minority in cases of uh, Bell's palsy. How do we measure these outcomes? The measurement of facial movement and grading facial movement is a very difficult uh, proposition, and um, the most commonly used uh, grading system uh, in the medical literature is the House-Brackman system, uh, which goes from one to six, one being essentially normal function in all areas, um, and getting progressively more severe to grade six paralysis, which is a complete paralysis with gross asymmetry at rest and no uh, perceptible motion. If you take a look at this, and actually I, I, I abbreviated this and edited this down, if you look at, in the textbooks at this grading system, it's very complicated and it's difficult to use. And that's one of the things that makes studying facial nerve paralysis and outcomes in facial nerve paralysis patients very difficult. Um, but there isn't yet a really good system. You'd think with uh, all of our digital technology, we'd have better ways of measuring facial movement, and, and those types of works are in progress around the country. 
A couple of comments about peripheral nerve injury and the pathophysiology of injury. Uh, the, the Sunderland classification is that which is most useful uh, in the medical literature. You'll see this out there, and I think it's worth mention. Um, the way to think about this, and this, by the way, applies to all peripheral nerves, not just to the facial nerve. We're applying it here to the facial nerve, uh, is this. this. Think of the nerve, and this is our, um, I'll use the, the mouse here, the, uh, the cell body up in the brain, and then it sends a little axon all the way out to the muscle. And there are layers around this. Think of them as layers around an onion or a, or a um, uh, cable with multiple different layers. The innermost layer is that axon, the actual nerve conducting fiber. Then the endoneurium, the perineurium, and the epineurium as you extend outside. And degrees of injury have to do with, um, are correlated to uh, the layers that are progressively injured as you go outwards from that inner axon. So a small partial injury to the axon is considered a neuropraxia. It's due to slight compression of the nerve, and you expect complete recovery. In fact, very rapid. This is akin to sort of falling asleep and feeling numb in, in the limb or something for a little while, maybe a little bit more severe than that, but not much. So a neuropraxia is a pretty mild injury. When the axon is permanently injured at one side and it, the distal portion of the axon out to the muscle dies, it has to regrow. But if the endoneurium is intact, that next layer is intact, the likelihood of getting regrowth down that peripheral nerve and back out to the muscle appropriately is very high. So that's the next level of Sunderland uh, classification. That's just axonal degeneration, and the recovery is usually satisfactory. The next layer up is loss of the endoneurium itself. So the, you've lost that guidance tubule. You've got the wider ones there around that onion. Um, that axon can, can regrow back out to its distal site, but it's more difficult. So you don't get quite the same kind of recovery that you did with grades 1 and 2. And finally, progressing out, we get to disruption of the perineurium. All you've got is a thin layer of the uh, epineurium on the outside holding things together. And the likelihood of recovery is even lower. And finally, completely severing the nerve is, uh, is a grade 5 um, injury to that nerve. Hopefully that sheds a little bit of light. And, those are going to come back to us as we think about how we do rehabilitation of the nerve, and that's why I want to spend a little time going through that, uh, that process with you. What would be the ideal reanimation procedure uh, for, for our patients? Uh, I was thinking about this, and really the ideal reanimation procedure would have the following qualities there would be no donor site deficit. So in other words, you wouldn't need to take tissue from some other part of the body or make incisions anywhere else. Anytime you do that, of course, there's risks to those areas and some deficit created there. So there would be no need to do anything like that. There would be immediate restitution of facial movement. So if we could do it, we would do some procedure that was non-invasive and allowed the facial nerve to be restored and we get complete restitution of facial movement immediately. We would get normal voluntary motion. So um, when uh, a patient would try to smile, they would smile. When they would try to raise their eyebrow or close their eyes, it would happen. There would be appropriate involuntary emotional responses. So there are a lot of things that our faces do involuntarily without thinking. Not just blinking, but other emotive responses um, uh, and nonverbal cues that we give. And if we could do that, uh, have a, a reanimation procedure that allowed us to do that, that would be perfect and facial symmetry would be another issue. Well, um, there really isn't a, a procedure that allows us to do all that. The closest thing that comes to this ideal reanimation procedure 
is for spontaneous nerve regeneration to occur. And that would be for that nerve to grow back out uh, on those tubules all the way back out to its destination because the complexity of the facial musculature uh, is so great that we do not yet have muscle substitutes and things which can recreate all of those functions that we talked about. So in patients with facial paralysis, our initial goal is to try to see if we can get spontaneous nerve regeneration or something close to that. The problem with uh, the spontaneous nerve regeneration is that it takes time. Peripheral nerves grow back at about a millimeter or so a day. Um, and as I mentioned, this has to grow back along this, this uh, pathway, along these nerve fibers, all the way out, as shown with those blue arrows, all the way out to their destination from the brain. Um, and there are lots of uh, turns and so on and so forth that it has to make to get back to its right destination. Those axons, as they grow out, may go to the wrong place. They may not end up in the right place, or they may not make it at all. So there are all sorts of issues here. When patients are going through this process, it's really one of watchful waiting. Uh, and this can take 12 to 18 months or more to see if this recovery occurs. In the initial period, as I mentioned earlier, there are a couple of uh, drug therapies which we can do for patients in whom we've determined or we've not been able to determine a cause. Uh, we may do steroid therapy. Um, decreasing inflammation along the nerve can be has been shown to help. And antiviral therapy, if we suspect that it's a Bell's palsy and that uh, viral infection uh, may have occurred. During this watchful waiting process, it's very frustrating uh, for patients, and uh, um, it's, it's, it takes a bit of a time to understand that uh, this, this process is a long one. Um, and during this time, though, we can do some things to try to see whether or not this, this regeneration is going to occur. Uh, and one of the tools that we use is uh, electromyography, or EMG. Using this technique, we actually place uh, small electrodes in the muscles of the face, and we measure their electrical activity to determine, since those are the end organs for those nerves, whether there's any signal getting to them, which is ultimately the goal. And there are four possible um, outcomes of this type of study. The first is uh, totally normal action potentials, in which case it's an indication that the muscle and the nerve are acting normally. Um, polyphasic potentials, uh, which may be present during reinnervation but may not be visible to the naked eye. So this is a, an exciting one to get for patients when there's no visible signs of recovery you do an EMG and it shows polyphasic potentials, that's a sign that silent recovery has already begun and um, visible recovery may be around the corner. Fibrillation potentials innervate normal muscle, um, but denervated muscle. So this may occur immediately after an injury. You may see the muscle is showing fibrillation potentials. And the one you don't want to see is electrical silence. This essentially uh, may be present if the muscle uh, is completely atrophied or if there's congenital absence of a given muscle. So that's something that we'd rather not see. So how do we know if a nerve will regenerate? The, the question to ask um, as a physician and as, as a subject or as a patient is what is the status of that nerve conduit? As I mentioned earlier with that uh, Sunderland classification system, that conduit for that nerve is, is critical for determining whether or not recovery can occur. And the degree of injury to that conduit is very important. The first uh, four classes of uh, Sunderland uh, demonstrate that, that that tubule is intact to varying degrees, and you can have a good chance for recovery. Uh, and you know there's a really good chance for spontaneous re, uh, regeneration in those patients. And if there's a discontinuity, a complete severing of the nerve, penetrating trauma, 
uh, extirpative surgery where the nerve has been sacrificed knowingly, then there's no chance for recovery and something else has to be done to try to, uh, try to rehabilitate the nerve. So let's talk about situations where the, the nerve is intact um, and we expect there to be some sort of recovery. Um, the first three rules uh, in an initial facial paralysis, um, whether or not you expect any recovery, uh, are eye protection, eye protection, and eye protection. And this is something that can't be stressed enough, um, and we are always reminding our patients about. That eye um, can be exposed to the air too long if you're unable to blink. Um, and if your tear production is, inter is being interfered with because the lacrimal gland isn't working, as I mentioned, the seventh nerve also goes there. So in those situations, patients can get corneal exposure. You need to be vigilant about taping the eye at night when sleeping. You don't think about it, but the eye is open. Um, you have to um, consider rehabilitative procedures, which we'll talk about. Use lubrication, uh, and that's sort of demonstrated on this slide. What happens uh, in, in facial paralysis is the nerve that goes to that upper lid that elevates the upper lid is a completely different nerve. So the eye has no problem being open, but there's no opposing force to close it, which is what the seventh nerve does. So we have upper eyelid retraction. The lower eyelid um, has, uh, uses the seventh nerve to pull it up to cover the eye from below. So if that's uh, paralyzed, then the mid face as it pulls down, pulls the eyelid out. So in this uh, slide, you can see that this lower eyelid is being pulled down, and I showed you in the, in the prior slide that. Some other options are uh, taping the night as a, uh, taping the, the eye at night and occlusive chambers, which are essentially like a greenhouse over the eye. Um, and I don't have any slides to show you that, uh, but it uh, essentially keeps uh, moisture around the eye so that it doesn't dry out. And this is demonstrating that closure function of the eye uh, with that orbicularis oculi muscle as it, can, as it closes and allows us to blink and lubricate the eye. So here's the same patient uh, showing um, the difficulty with eye closure. And a couple interesting things about the image on the uh, right-hand side of the screen. When she uh, tries to blink, notice that the upper, the upper eyelid doesn't move. The, over, the lower eyelid stays in its uh, retracted position. When, when compared to the opposite side, you can see it's covering the limbus of the eye. On this side, it does not. When she tries to close, she can't. That nerve to the to the muscle that pulls the eyelid up is stopped, but nothing's pulling the eyelid down. The eye actually rolls up. That's called the Bell's eye phenomenon. And that's an interesting reflex that uh, we have that is trying to get that eye to be covered by the lid and get lubricated. So even in that situation, uh, the, uh, the brain and the eye knows that there's something wrong and tries to elevate that eye up. This is totally involuntary. The patient isn't trying to do that. Rehabilitation around the eye is something we will do in patients surgically, even if we do expect spontaneous recovery, because this is a relatively benign procedure to do for patients and reversible in many cases. And traditionally, a treatment of the upper lid involves placement of a weight in the upper lid that acts as a cantilever to pull that eyelid down. Um, palpebral springs are another option. Um, in the lower lid, we perform canthoplasties on the, the medial side and the lateral side essentially to tighten that lower lid and act like that a muscle would normally do to provide that sling to the lower lid. And in severe cases, um, the upper and lower eyelid can actually be sewn together permanently, laterally. That's called a tarsorophy, and that's uh, something that uh, fortunately we do rather rarely. My um, favorite procedures are the upper lid gold weight. You can also use uh, platinum uh, and the lateral canthoplasty.
Determining the amount of weight to put in the upper eyelid is a little tricky. Um, and one nice tool for doing this is actually to test uh, patients with facial paralysis in the clinic with a uh, quote-unquote dummy weight on the upper eyelid made of lead. And I think you can see here on this slide that she has a small piece of metal taped to her right upper eyelid. And um, you'll notice here, now when she closes her eyes, she's able to bring that eyelid down. Complete closure is not achieved here because that lower lid is still retracted, and that's something that you treat with a canthoplasty. So using this technique, we can try different weights and see which weight works best for a patient to determine um, uh, how much we should put in to make sure they can close their eye. This is an example uh, of a patient with um, eyelid retraction, uh, lower eyelid retraction. You can see the irritation around the conjunctiva here um, and the upper eyelid um, uh, with a gold weight in position here. And on closure, this is the patient preoperatively and after surgery with the canthoplasty with the lower eyelid pulled up and the upper eyelid. You can actually kind of see the shape of that gold weight underneath the eyelid there, which is one of the downsides uh, of the procedure, but it really does provide nice protection to the eye. Another example of a canthoplasty and gold weight showing eyelid closure. Again, you can see the eye rolling up with that Bell's eye phenomenon preoperatively and then postoperatively nice closure uh, of the eye and protection. The main complication uh, with gold weight placement is extrusion. Um, and it occurs in about 10 to 15% of patients. There's no real rhyme or reason for why this occurs. There's no predictive factor. Uh, the body doesn't like having a, a foreign object in the upper eyelid, and the upper eyelid skin is thin. So sometimes it can come out. If this occurs, you remove it uh, and let the eyelid heal, and you can replace it again later on. But it's something worth mentioning, because it does occur 10 to 15% of the time. So eye rehabilitation and care for the eye is important for all patients. Patients in whom you expect spontaneous recovery may not get it for 18 months or more, and that's a long time to go with that eye in that situation, and that's why surgical rehabilitation around the eye can be done in patients in whom there is an intact conduit and you expect recovery, or in patients in whom the, the nerve is discontinuous and you do not expect recovery. So in either case. In cases where it's discontinuous, we have no potential for spontaneous regeneration. Uh, and in this case, we have a few different options uh, for treatment. Again, the primary surgical options now center around trying to get signals down that nerve conduit out to those muscles. There's no surgical procedure that can replace all those muscle vectors in the face, as well as nerve stimulation back to those muscles can do. So the first few surgical procedures we talk about in rehabilitation are surgical attempts to recreate signals down the facial nerve. The first is facial nerve neurography, uh, which is a fairly uh, straightforward concept. If you have a, um, a situation where the nerve was severed in the operating room, in trauma, and you have access to both ends, and they can be put back together with no tension, it's a matter of doing a microsurgical procedure where you sew the nerve back together. In this case, it's a Sunderland class 5 injury, so the distal portion of that nerve, all those little axons are going to die. What you're sewing it back for is because you want those axons to grow back out down that pathway, back to their correct destinations. And that is still the best option for recovery. The problem is, again, it may take 12 to 18 months or more to see that recovery occur, and it may be incomplete. But it's still the best option for patients. And this is a, a, an image taken from one of the, the textbooks by Mark May, showing how we like to do that. 
Option number two for surgical rehabilitation is an interpositional graft. In this case, you have to have an intact facial nerve proximally towards the brain. That's the active side. And you want to, in this case, be able to attach it to the distal end where those facial nerve branches are going out. And if, there's, if you don't have the ability to sew them directly, as in the prior slide, then perhaps you can use some sort of grafting material to bridge the gap and allow those axons to make their way out. Okay? And this is called a facial nerve interpositional graft. So again, any situation with an avulsed nerve in a viable proximal segment and distal segment, but you just can't get them to connect. Cases where you might use this, a total parotidectomy, that's that saliva gland that the nerve passes through. If the entire gland is removed and the nerve is sacrificed because of a tumor, for example, then this is a good situation to do an interpositional nerve graft at the time of surgery. Temporal bone resections, again, the temporal bone is that bone the nerve runs through. If the portion of that's removed due to extirpative surgery for a tumor, then you can place an inter interpositional graft in there. Traumatic avulsions, again, sometimes in, in a trauma situation, a portion of the nerve may be so damaged it's not usable, but you can take the proximal end and the distal end and connect them with a the nerve graft and allow some recovery to occur. Some commonly nerve, uh, used nerve materials uh, for grafts are sensory nerves. So we can actually borrow a nerve used for a totally different purpose uh, from somewhere else in the body and move it uh, up into the position we want it to be in by the facial nerve and allow those axons to grow through it as a conduit. The great auricular nerve is a sensory nerve in the neck. The sural nerve is a sensory nerve down in the, in the leg. And the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve is a sensory nerve in the arm. So in these situations, you take those segments of those nerves, so you're sacrificing some sensation. So maybe numbness on a portion of the face, in the case of the great auricular nerve, numbness in the leg or a portion of the foot, in the sural nerve's case, and, or in the arm for the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve. You're trading some numbness of the skin for the ability to move the face. And this is a, a diagram showing where the great auricular nerve is. Um, it's a nice nerve because often, as you might imagine, we're in the area because we're in the head and neck already to do some of our nerve grafting and we can sort of reach down and take a section of the great auricular nerve from just on top of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is the main, one of the big muscles in the side of your neck. It runs right on top of it and we can take a branch of it. Um, this actually has a nice branching pattern uh, and so as it comes up it branches into a few little branches so we can actually use that. Uh, just like the facial nerve branches to, uh, to attach to the distal branches of the facial nerve, and it's of similar size. Um, we don't need to get into too many of the details other than saying that we'd like this to be sewn under no tension. We'd like it to be matched up size-wise as best possible with the other sections of the nerve as we sew it in as surgeons when we're doing this. One thing to note, though, is that you know, if you aren't able to graft all the edges, uh, all the branches of the facial nerve, the ones you give priority to are the zygomatic branches, which go to the eye, and the buccal branches that go into the mid-face and the upper portion of the mouth. Those are the ones which are most important for, uh, for function of the face, eye closure and eye protection, and ability to move the upper portion of the mouth. So you give priority to those sections. Again, demonstrating uh, this lazy S formation. We'd like there to be no tension when we sew this in. And just a couple examples. Uh, these come out very red on the slide projector, I know, but uh, this is a situation where the proximal nerve stump uh, is actually over here, and the nerve is sutured at this point and out here with a nerve graft taken from the great auricular nerve using the operating microscope. 
Another example here is one where we, uh, we branched and the only distal branch is actually available where the zygomatic branches and the branches down uh, to the buccal area. So we sewed this in. There's an anastomosis to the proximal facial nerve here going back into the skull and distally out here and going out uh, into the uh, face to the facial musculature. And I think those are the last of the intraoperative slides I'm going to show, maybe one more, so I hope I didn't, uh, didn't scare anyone off with that. So our order of preference for rehabilitation, um, I'm sure you've noticed, so far we haven't gotten anything beyond working with the nerve. Working with that nerve and getting that nerve to regenerate, either itself spontaneously or along a conduit uh, out to those muscles, is the best procedure. I often have patients uh, come to me um, and, uh, and they, they would like me to replace you know, muscles of the face and so on, and I have to explain, uh, if, especially if it's a uh, paralysis in which we expect some sort of spontaneous recovery over time, that there's no substitute yet with all of our technology for the ability um, of that nerve to go out to those muscles on its own. And it has to do with the complexity uh, of the facial musculature. A couple other concepts. So um, in some cases, uh, we can actually do a nerve transposition. In this case, uh, we are um, not putting a cable graft in. Um, we have a situation where the proximal facial nerve stump going to the brain is not available. So we need some sort of electrical signal to get out there to those muscles. And we're still not yet ready to go to our muscle transfer procedures. So what we're going to do is we're going to steal axons from a different nerve, a nerve that has some other function or from some other place in the head and neck, and we're going to send those motor axons out to where the facial nerve had been going. So um, in this case, there are two main options. One is using the opposite facial nerve. That's called a cross-face nerve graft, facial nerve graft. And the other is using the hypoglossal nerve, which I um, showed earlier, and that's nerve number 12, cranial nerve number 12, and that gives motor function to the tongue, allows us to move our tongue in various directions. There's one on each side. So uh, first, let's talk about cross-face uh, nerve grafts. In this case, this diagram shows uh, in green the uh, normal side of the face, the branches of the facial nerve there, and the paralyzed side with the branches of the facial nerve which are non-functioning in red. And if we did a cross-face nerve graft, one way to do this, for example, is to take a piece of the sural nerve from the leg and attach it to the uh, normal side of the face, to that facial nerve, and then attach it on the other side to uh, the dead, so to speak, portion of the facial nerve. And what we have then is we're, as you might imagine, we're going to steal axons away from a portion of the facial nerve on the normal side, but we're going to hope that they regrow all the way out across to the opposite side and then provide some sort of partial innervation to the face on this side. And I purposely left the red and the green on that side to show that this is an incomplete recovery. And you do sacrifice some nerve function on the side that you take it from. And as you might imagine, that is one of the downsides. So one of the disadvantages is partial paralysis of the normal side of the face. Um, but the advantages are because you're using the facial nerve from the opposite side, when the brain sends a signal to smile, you will smile on both sides when it's working. So um, voluntary and involuntary emotive responses will be there. And as I'll show you some of the other procedures, uh, that, that isn't the case. And one of the other ones is the 12 to 7 nerve transfer. In this case, we're taking electrical signals from a different nerve that, that goes to a different muscle, and we're going to send them out to the facial musculature. In this case, we're going to take nerve fibers that go down the 12th nerve to the tongue. We're going to make an incision along this nerve 
take an extra length of it, pull it up, and sew it into the distal end of those facial nerve branches and hope that it grows out to the facial musculature. And then patients will learn that when their brain um, says move the tongue on the left, for example, in this, uh, in this uh, slide, they will get facial contraction. Now, through biofeedback techniques, you can start uh, to have very nice responses, uh, involuntary responses, but it's not quite the same as having the facial nerve innervating that side. So, uh, sorry, I apologize. One more of these, another couple more of these slides like this. This is to show uh, where that 12th nerve is. I, I pointed to it earlier in the talk. It's down here. We can mobilize this all the way up and sew it in right up here uh, to where that facial nerve uh, stump would be and hope those fibers grow back out. Again, 12 to 18 months to see if that recovery occurs. The advantage is there's no effect on the opposite side of the face. You're not sacrificing movement on the normal side of the face. Um, the disadvantage is you're going to get partial paralysis of the, uh, of the tongue. So one side of the tongue won't move anymore. Now there are some nuances of the technique whereby you can try to preserve some tongue function. I uh, won't get into that now, but basically you are running a significant risk of sacrificing movement on one side of the tongue and getting tongue atrophy on one side. For that reason, uh, in folks who have difficulties with speech or swallowing already, for example, patients who've had strokes and have multiple cranial nerve neuropathies, it's not a, a good idea to do this procedure because it'll just make it worse for them. Uh, one nice study by Malik uh, looked at these different nerve um, uh, regrowth techniques, and one being primary repair of the nerve, second being cable nerve grafting, and the third being 12 to 7 anastomosis and outcomes in patients uh, in whom uh, the nerve had been injured, did not look at cross-face grafting. And as you might expect, the best outcomes occurred, in this case looking at uh, calling a good outcome a house grade 1, 2, or 3 recovery of the face. The best outcomes occurred in patients in whom that nerve was just sewn back up. The second best occurred in patients in whom you took the proximal stump of the facial nerve and used that cable nerve graft. And the third best outcome was using a 12 to 7 anastomosis. Now, I will tell you that all of those would have been better outcomes than you'd get with muscle transfers, but that's sort of a different uh, situation, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, next. In situations where there's no chance for spontaneous recovery, or uh, situations in which um, the spontaneous recovery or the other techniques which have been used have been incomplete or did not work, there may be an indication to actually move muscle with nerve attached somewhere in the face and substitute it for some aspect of facial motion. And the challenge uh, as a reconstructive surgeon uh, is uh, how do we recreate all those different tension vectors, both linear tension vectors that lift the eyebrow, move up a corner of the mouth, or move down the lip, move out the nose. How do we recreate those? And how do we also recreate the sphincteric functions around the eye that allow eyelid closure? And the mouth is perhaps the most complex uh, because of all the different motions which are present around the mouth. How do we recreate all of those things with a muscle transfer procedure? And, um, you know, again, showing uh, what happens in patients with um, facial paralysis. By the way, many of the things that I'm showing here um, in facial paralysis, um, these are not quite as obvious in younger patients. The tissues are tighter around the face. Patients with uh, unilateral facial paralysis who are children, uh, there's a syndrome called Mobius syndrome, whereby you can be born without um, facial nerve movement. Um, those patients often at rest, you don't see a lot. 
as we age, we get descent of some of our soft tissues and laxity of the tissues around the face, and we rely on the muscles of the face to actually suspend all those tissues. So when you lose it, what happens is this. And so you get descent of the mid-face, which pulls down on this lower eyelid. Uh, you get loss of this nasolabial fold. Um, as you can see, it's present on the opposite side, but not here. The side of the nose begins to collapse downwards. Um, the uh, corner of the mouth also collapses down. It's kind of cut off in this slide, but often patients will try really hard to lift their eyebrow because they're getting obstruction of their vision. So they're lifting up the normal side really high, which makes this asymmetry look uh, even worse. One area which we uh, can recreate is the linear tension vector around the corner of the mouth. And a lot of the muscle transfer procedures concentrate on the mid-face in order to elevate that corner of the mouth and the side of the nose. There are two primary uh, techniques, uh, categories of techniques, to elevate that portion of the side of the face and the mid-face area, as we call it. Those are the static techniques, which, as you might uh, surmise, uh, involve no movement at all, and in fact don't necessarily involve a muscle transfer. Uh, and then the dynamic techniques, which allow some movement of the face uh, when they're performed for the patients. These slings uh, support the mid-face and elevate the commissure of the mouth to a neutral or slightly um, uh, elevated position, uh, and there's no movement possible with them. The innervated techniques, you actually can get some motion. So the static sling uh, in facial reanimation is one of the oldest procedures, um, and it reestablishes that zygomatic muscle um, from the lateral portion of the mouth up to the, up to the upper portion of the cheek vector. Uh, and you can use Gore-Tex, or EPTFE, I should say, or fascia from other portions of the body, as well as cadaveric materials to elevate that portion of the side of the face. The advantages of it are it's a single stage procedure. Some of the other procedures I'll show you involve multiple uh, procedures. And it's relatively straightforward, although no, no procedure is completely simple. Um, the disadvantage is that no movement is possible uh, with this technique. But at rest, the patients look much better. Um, I think this is the last, I keep promising that, the last slide. Uh, like this. But this is an unusual situation where we can actually take an image here because of a large tumor that was removed. Uh, but this is a static sling from the corner of the mouth elevating up that whole side of the face and sewn into place. And that's actually cadaveric uh, tissue that's uh, present there. Um, my preference is to perform dynamic um, procedures for my patients to allow them to have movement. It's not a lot more morbidity uh, for the patients uh, and they actually can get some motion. And I'll show you some videos of this in a little while. The pedicle muscle uh, transfer techniques involve um, doing things in one stage, taking a portion of a muscle in the head and neck, moving one side of its attachment. Now there are two attachments for muscles, the origins and insertions. You take one side and move it to uh, a portion of the paralyzed face and leave the other side attached with its blood supply and its nerve supply. Now of course you have to use muscles which are innervated by some other nerve, not the facial nerve because that's not working anymore. And patients will need to relearn to fire those other muscles to cause facial uh, expressions. They usually do very well with that. Free muscle transfer techniques involve movement of muscle with its blood supply and nerve from one portion of the body, for example, the leg or the trunk, detaching it completely and moving it up into the face and hooking up those blood vessels and nerves and allowing them to regrow. So that involves a couple of procedures in many cases. So let's talk about pedicle muscle transfer techniques, which are uh, my, um, my uh, personal bias. Uh, again, some images taken from Mark May's textbook. They're very nice images showing some of the different muscle transfer techniques in the head and neck. 
Uh, in this case, uh, we've, the, the diagram shows the masseter muscle, which is one of the muscles of mastication used in um, uh, chewing. Uh, and taking a portion of that muscle and releasing it off of the jaw and rotating it forward to attach to the mouth. And as you can see here, this vector is sort of lateral and superior. And the disadvantage of that is it's not recreating that vector, which is really more supralateral, like so. And that's where the temporalis uh, muscle transfer uh, technique comes into play. Um, in this case, this temporalis muscle, which is also a muscle of mastication, innervated by a different nerve uh, than, than the muscles of facial expression, you can take a, a portion um, of this muscle, you can take actually a large portion of it and turn it 180 degrees and sew it into a portion of the face uh, at the corner of the mouth all the way up to the corner of the nose. Some people even use it around the eye um, and get some um, tension on that and movement. So here's an example of a, a patient, um, I think I showed her images earlier, who will uh, undergo a temporalis transfer procedure. Long-standing paralysis, uh, appropriate candidate, no spontaneous regeneration. And you can see the corner of the mouth here is uh, uh, deeply depressed. And by making an incision here along this side of the, of the face and recreating a nasolabial fold and making an incision up in here to get that temporalis muscle and making a tunnel underneath, we can pass that down. And this is an example of that muscle um, uh, being passed down. This is showing it over the skin, but we throw it underneath the skin through a tunnel, um, out to that nasolabial fold here, and sew it into position. And uh, there's a defect created where you take the muscle so you can actually put a little implant up there to fill that in so that it doesn't show. And this is an example uh, of uh, uh, temporalis sling repair. Now this is, I don't think I had a preoperative video of this, um, a nice patient, so I'm just showing you a still image of her smiling. And then five months after uh, uh, surgery, and it doesn't take that long, but that's when these images were taken, you can see she now has a nasolabial fold, and when, she's, when she smiles, she can actually elevate that whole side of her face. So you can see here on corner view, you can watch this elevate about a centimeter and a half, two centimeters, which is a big deal uh, for patients who, are on, who had no other options and had no movement of one side of the face. Another example, I think if this works here, of a patient uh, who underwent a temporalis uh, sling repair. And this is pre-surgery, and you can see, uh, I think I showed these uh, videos earlier, uh, there's uh, no motion on this side of the face, particular attention to the uh, lateral slant and lack of a nasolabial fold here. And then only a month after uh, surgery, uh, I took this video, and this uh, demonstrates, notice the mouth is now flat, there's a nasolabial fold, and there's going to be some movement of the cheek upwards and the corner of the mouth upwards. The lower lip is not affected, so there's some issues there, and we'll talk about rehabilitative options down in the lower lip in just a few minutes. I think he's going to clench and show some movement right here. There you go. But the baseline suspension is there uh, of, the side of, of that side of the face, and then you also get some motion. Uh, a few still images, uh, I think, demonstrate this as well. And this is a uh, smiling um, after surgery, showing elevation and creation of a nasolabial fold. A uh, patient I showed earlier with the split face images, smiling preoperatively, smiling after surgery, <clears throat> recreation of a nasolabial fold, and elevation of the mid-face. Notice he's also had some rehabilitation around his eye. 
I'm sorry, this is a smiling image. So when he smiles, it actually elevates even farther than it did in the past image. Uh, patient I just showed you in the video, um, and you can see actually he's got so much motion out here, he's starting to get uh, even uh, some crow's feet out there, which is a really nice thing to see. Um, that comes from being able to elevate your cheek, uh, so uh, we're real happy about that. Now, one of the newer techniques talked about, uh, and we're kind of excited about, is free muscle transfer techniques. Um, and in this case, like I mentioned, you actually take a, a muscle from either the trunk, the torso, uh, or the extremity, uh, usually the inner thigh, called the gracilis muscle, and you move that entire thing uh, up into the face, and you sew it in to a nerve, a donor nerve, and to a blood vessel supply. Um, and um, in some cases, it can be done in one stage, in some cases in two. The advantages uh, of uh, each of these techniques are as follows. The pedicle muscle transfer techniques are virtually always single stage, and the disadvantages are there are a few fewer options for donor sites and vectors to use. Whereas if you move a muscle from another part of the body, you have more options for where you can get the tissue you need to use, um, uh, and you can place it in slightly different ways inside the face. There are no constraints in that regard. But the disadvantage is the time for re when you move that temporalis muscle over, it is working you know, immediately. And some of those patients, you can actually see it the first day after surgery because uh, that, that, that nerve is attached and that muscle is not, it, it is fully functional. Uh, but with the, uh, these other techniques, you have to wait for that nerve to regrow back into that muscle. So that's one of the disadvantages. We'll talk a little bit about uh, rehabilitation of the uh, lower portion of the face and then we'll, we'll kind of finish up. And down here, it gets a little bit um, less reliable in terms of what you can achieve. And as I mentioned, that, that orbicularis oris function around the mouth is really hard to recreate. One of the things that happens um, in the lower lip is the uh, lip actually goes up against gravity because there's no more muscle that pulls it down, which is what we usually do uh, with that muscle. Um, and uh, so we often have patients that say they bite their lip. Um, and their lip also starts to move to the opposite side because there's... Uh, tension on the opposite side without any opposing tension on the paralyzed side. And I think you may have noticed in some of the images I showed you that the, the, the whole mouth is kind of moved towards the non-paralyzed side. One of the simpler techniques is shortening the lip and everting it. Uh, the disadvantage is no movements possible. A couple images showing how we would do that in the operating room um, and simply shorten the lip. But it's a little bit swollen there because it's in the, in, in the operating room photo on the right-hand side of the screen. Um, but one of the nicer techniques is a, is a dynamic technique. We can actually borrow some muscle and get that lower lip to move a little bit. And with this, we actually take a muscle um, called the mylohyoid uh, muscle. We take the anterior portion, I'm sorry, the digastric muscle. I, let me step back a second. We take a muscle called the digastric muscle, and we take the front portion of it here, and we flip it around and attach it to the lower lip. And um, that's shown diagrammatically here. And uh, in the operating room, we can isolate the muscle, pull it out, and then attach it to the lower lip. And this is showing, it's very subtle now, um, that this lower lip is sort of elevated on this side. Uh, but on the post-operative image, you can see that actually there's a nice corner, which is more symmetric with the opposite side, which has created very subtle stuff here. But pulling down on that lower lip can make a big difference for folks who have trouble, trouble with biting the lip due to facial paralysis. So in our, our flow chart, um, again, reinnervation of the nerve um, with a proximal uh, regeneration all the way out is the best option for patients. And if we look, think about how when, when I'm approaching patients, I'm kind of going through this uh, flow chart in my mind. 
Um, if there's a nerve injury, is a primary repair possible? Uh, if not, can we cable graft the nerve or do some sort of other sort of cross-nerve graft? Because reinnervation out to those muscle tissues is the best option in virtually all cases. Um, if, uh, if the patient has any other cranial nerve neuropathies, other, if they have had a stroke and they have difficulty with speech or swallowing, they're not a candidate for transfer of the 12th nerve up. Um, and then we get to the situation where we might consider static or dynamic slings, and this is a discussion uh, that on a patient-to-patient -patient basis we come to a decision about what sort of muscle transfer procedure, if any, is indicated. In all cases, uh, on top of this chart, I should say eye protection, eye protection, eye protection. That's always paramount, and that's not really uh, shown here at all. So just a few final comments. You know, um, I, think, I think we all understand that facial paralysis causes significant morbidity in patients who've been afflicted with this. And I think hopefully you've, if you don't know somebody who's been uh, touched by this, uh, with this lecture tonight, you've kind of gotten an understanding for the psychosocial impact this can have. Uh, on folks who, who suffer from this. Initial management always involves eye protection, whether or not there's any uh, thought about um, the likelihood of reinnervation. Um, is always uh, preferable. I think I'm starting to sound like a broken record on this one. Um, but static and dynamic reanimation is possible uh, in situations where um, that nerve is not going to regrow. And linear muscle vectors can be recreated with current technology but sphincteric muscles, circular closure patterns, cannot yet be duplicated with the technology that we have. And um, with that, I'd like to just uh, end uh, by showing again uh, our subject to who, when using the split face of the paralyzed side of the face, uh, shows uh, some element of sadness. But when we take his rehabilitated side, <clears throat> this is the same side of the face after eye rehabilitation and after rehabilitation of the corner of the mouth, we can see a much more uh, happy, emotive uh, response uh, in our patients. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. I'll take any questions you may have. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.